and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 181, Civilians Join the Cause. Last time, the U.S. Navy, specifically the destroyer USS Jesse Roper, had finally sank a U-boat, U-85. Of course, as far as the American people were concerned, 28 German subs had been sunk by this point, which was not the case. Still, as much as this victory should have been celebrated, it was just one sub, and there were plenty more on their way. After all, at this very moment, there were more than 100 German subs operating in the North Atlantic, and another 200 subs either returning to base for supplies or about to head out. So, if it took the U.S. Navy four months to sink one sub, then there was plenty of pain in store for the American East Coast and the Navy trying to protect it. And the news was only getting worse. Berlin planned on building another 237 subs in 1942, and in 1943, another 284. And, to give longer patrol lives to the current subs, the German Navy was just now finishing up a new class of U-boat, the Type 14 boat, nicknamed Milk Cow. The reason for this was these larger but lightly armed subs were made to head out away from Europe to meet up with the combat subs and resupply them with food, torpedoes, and fuel. When these were operational, far-off Allied ports like Panama, Aruba, and the Texas coast would then be within range. But as furiously as the German naval yards were working on their milk cows, Admiral Ernest J. King, commander-in-chief of the Navy, was working on his own plans to make sure that any merchant marine that needed to travel between the Gulf of Mexico going north to the Canadian Maritimes and Newfoundland could do so within a convoy. The good news was that, in time, the German subs would more or less give up on hunting convoys, as the price for doing so would go up higher and higher. The bad news was the in-time part. King was getting there, but for the moment it was paper shuffling or moving objects on a board in a mini-war game, if you will. But if King could not yet further shield the merchantmen, at the very least, He could have more men placed on the islands off North Carolina to help with survivors, to go after survivors, and the less attractive to gather up debris along the beaches, anything that might put names to bodies or give some insights into the Germans. So when the Coast Guard recruits started arriving in North Carolina, they were sent to the various islands, like Ocracoke Island. If they had no sailing experience under their belt, They were assigned to beach patrol. But no, it was not a day in paradise, like one might think. First, the 375 linear miles off North Carolina's coast had to be watched day and night. And as destroyers were still in short supply, so were vehicles for coast watchers, which meant a lot of walking that winter and early spring of 1942 on sand, which quickly took the strength out of the recruits. Then there were the winds that sucked the strength out of a person, and the sand was constantly stinging the men in their faces. But the worst of it all, besides the cold winds, the sand, and the feeling of loneliness, were the mosquitoes, 
and as someone who unwisely went to Avon during the spring, I can assure you, we spent most of that week indoors. Eventually, someone who was past tired of walking along the sandy beaches suggested using horses. Now, there were plenty of wild horses on several of the islands already, like Core Banks, Shackleford Banks, Ocracoke Island, and Curatuck Banks, which is probably what inspired the idea. It was believed that these horses were descendants by those brought over by the Spanish many years ago. Yet the military, as was its wont, wanted everything just so. Hence, the wild horses were left alone, and the U.S. Army Quartermaster's remount service would be used. This made sense as the mechanization of U.S. horses meant that many thousands of horses were just standing around, eating grass. So, some 3,000 horses were sent to North Carolina for the Coast Guard. Now, those in command were hoping against hope of a repeat from the West Coast. When horses were going to be used there, many experienced riders from different walks of life volunteered. However, in and around North Carolina, there were few polo players, rodeo riders, and cowboys. No worry. Orders were handed down that the new Coasties, as they were called, were to train the new mounts, which was a problem, as few of the new recruits knew anything about horses. Still, step one was to walk the horses along the beaches to climatize them to their new surroundings. How hard could that be? Turns out, pretty hard and painful. As the horses were being walked, the sound of the waves crashing would spook them, and they would take off with or without their trainer holding on for dear life. Soon, patrols had to be sent out to find either riderless horses or horseless riders. Another addition made to the patrol, in lieu of more destroyers, were dogs. The horses were made official in September of 42, and the dogs the month before. And yet both of these additions came with irony. First, the majority of dogs selected and trained, either in Pennsylvania or South Carolina, were German shepherds, Rottweilers, or Doberman pinchers. Next, by the time the horses and hounds were up to speed with patrols, the German threat to the North Carolina coast was practically over. But there was one supplement that made a difference in this war off the North Carolina coast, and that was the Hooligan Navy. Officially, it was known as the U.S. Coast Guard Corsair Fleet, made up of small private craft who would engage in enemy submarine patrols. Like the use of horses, this idea of using private craft to supplement the U.S. Navy was brought up a few times before Pearl Harbor. It was brought up by those who felt that it was just a matter of time before the U.S. and Japan crossed paths somewhere in the Pacific. First, Admiral King turned this down because he wanted the same craft to focus on rescuing survivors of doomed ships. And when a Rhode Island-based sword fishing fleet suggested that the Navy put radios in their boats so they could call something in, this, too, was turned down, but here on firmer ground. King said no, again, but this time it was because of the Hague Convention of 1907 that said civilian vessels were safe from capture because of their non-belligerence. 
but by putting in the radios, this would put a target on the ships that were used to being the hunters and not the hunted. And then the Cruising Club of America, nice name, suggested that their craft be used to help patrol off the coast. But this was not men too old for the draft seeking excitement. No, it was inspired by the 700 little ships of Dunkirk that saved 331,226 British and French soldiers from the German army. Further, the Commodore of the Cruising Club of America said that the sailing yachts with auxiliary engines would be undetectable to the enemy U-boat's hydrophones. By April of 42, the Commodore had 70 large sailing yachts and 100 other smaller craft ready to help the Navy. King shot this down again, but soon the public was demanding that these vessels be allowed to help. One, it seemed to make sense on the surface, and two, the number of sunken ships was rising steadily. So King relented and ordered the Coast Guard Reserve to incorporate them. By July of 1942, the Hooligan Navy, some 143 boats, were out patrolling, looking for German submarines. Of course, the U.S. Navy's public relations team got involved and told America that some 1,200 ships were now helping the cause. So out went the wooden vessels looking for German submarines. The Navy would give these ships sonar devices, massive brown things that were lowered over the side. Then a member of the crew would put on earphones and listen out for the enemy. On board these ships, usually, was a pistol or two and some rifles. Not exactly a threat to Admiral Donnett's gang. So depth charge racks were placed on either side of the tail end of the boat. However, the Navy made it clear that these explosives when dropped, should never be set to go off less than 50 feet, and the boats had to be going at least 10 knots. But the civilian crews knew that the 90-foot wooden vessel's max speed was only 8 knots. As one crewman put it, I'm glad we never actually came across a sub. Otherwise, we might have hurt them, but we would have definitely killed ourselves. Then someone decided that the hooligan navy needed a mascot for morale. Hence, Walt Disney Studios offered to lend the Enterprise the one and only Donald Duck, though dressed as a pirate with an eye patch, a cutlass, and a knife in his bill. As for this lifting morale, the jury is still out. In the end, Admiral King was mostly correct regarding the hooligan Navy's impact. No subs were sunk by them. However, there were a few close calls. In 1944, the 40-foot yacht JT received a distress call from a merchant marine. By the time the JT showed up, the merchant was gone, but the sub was still in the area. In fact, the sub broke surface, took one look at the vessel, and then resubmerged. The yacht's crew was still trying to figure out what was happening when their entire ship was lifted out of the water. It seems that the Germans, who could have blasted the JT to smithereens, wanted to teach the Americans a lesson instead. So they got right under the yacht and rose, lifting the would-be slayer out of the water. The JT was damaged, but able to return home. 
Another hooligan volunteer had a German sub surface right next to it. The hatch opened up, and the sub's captain said, in English, Get the hell out of here, you guys. Do you want to get hurt? Now, scram! Again, the Germans could have simply rammed the ship and sunk it, not fearing the Americans' weapons on board. But the Germans should have feared one item aboard the ship. It's radio. Over the years of the war, the Hooligan Navy was able to annoy and harass the Germans, not by attacking them, but by reporting them and their location to the U.S. Navy. Thus, they did contribute to the war effort. Then there was the Flying Minutemen. Just as the American sailors were inspired by the rescues of Dunkirk, the American pilots were also moved by their British counterparts, having their flights curtailed for safety reasons. However, the pilots of North America saw an opportunity to help out with the U-boat menace. Even before the U.S. entered the war, there were American pilots on each coast that saw what was happening to their British counterparts, namely the limited ability to be allowed to fly. So someone came up with the idea of these same pilots contributing by keeping a watch over the country's coastlines. This Admiral Andrews, the Eastern Frontier Commander, sent up the chain of command, commenting, at the very least, having more eyes in the sky would deter German subs. No surprise, this was shot down by Admiral King, noting operational difficulties. Still, New Jersey, being New Jersey, ignored King and set up the New Jersey Division of Aeronautics. And with this being established, former New York City Mayor and current National Civil Defense Chief Foriello LaGuardia, who was a pilot in World War I, created a National Civil Air Patrol operation, and then created the Civil Air Patrol, or CAP, on December 1st, 1941. It didn't take long for the pilots of North Carolina, given the number of sinking ships off their coast, to set up their own chapter and then join the national organization. Soon, hundreds of pilots were getting ready to take their turn in patrolling the seas just off the state's coast. Their airfield, known as Skyco on Roanoke Island, just southwest of Nagshead, was set up and was number 16 of 21 bases established to help patrol the East Coast and Gulf of Mexico. On a side note, if you ever go to Roanoke Island, make sure you check out the unimaginatively named North Carolina Aquarium on Roanoke Island. You will not regret it. In time, Base 16 was moved, improved, and then augmented by other airfields. The crew of each flight was normally two people, the pilot and an observer-slash-radio operator, who was also normally a pilot. The pilot was paid $8 a day, the observer-slash-radio operator, 5 But in May of 1942, a plane from a base in Florida flew across an enemy sub that was stranded in shallow water, stuck there for 45 minutes. One depth charge or bomb could have ended that crew's patrol. Hence, from then on, each plane would carry, if possible, one 325-pound depth charge or two 100-pound bombs. Times, being what they were, women were soon allowed to join 
though they mostly flew ground support roles, like towing anti-aircraft targets or piloting during inland missions. During an 18-month period, the Civil Air Patrol claimed to have flown 24 million miles, spotted 173 U-boats, bombed 57 of those, damaged 17, and sank two. However, this last statistic cannot be proven. But what really matters is that the U.S. military branches had another set of eyes off the coasts and called in 91 ships that were in distress, which contributed to 363 survivors. During that same 18-month period, 85 pilots were lost, as were 90 planes. It was a dangerous time, but these people were trying to help protect their country and defeat the enemy. For example, on December 21, 1942, two men of the Coastal Patrol, Base 16 at Skyco, took off for a routine patrol. Not long after, the radio at Skyco came to life. The panicked voice of Frank Cook, a North Carolina native, was signaling that their plane was having difficulty. Cook repeated his message, We are dropping rapidly and are going to crash. The other in the plane was Julian Cooper, another North Carolinian. Then, with the channel still open, the personnel back at Base 16 heard the plane hit the water. A second cap plane was sent out, and when they spotted the pilots, rubber jackets were thrown down to them. Then the plane had to depart as it was low on fuel. By then, several Coast Guard stations had been alerted to send out ships. The first one on the scene was the all-African-American crew from Pea Island. But as they closed in on the two men, their surf boat, oar-driven and used for rescue, was no match for the rough seas. It was pushed back again and again. The bodies of Cook and Cooper were never found. The news had been better six months earlier. On July 21, 1942, at the Rehoboth Beach Control Base No. 2 in Delaware, on the eastern side of the Delmarva Peninsula, due east of Washington, D.C., received a faint distress call at 4.40 p.m. Major Hugh Sharp and Lieutenant Eddie Edwards took off in their single-engine Sikorsky S-39 as they were made aware that a fellow plane had gone down. 20 minutes earlier. Flying over the spot of the downed plane, soon Sharp and Edwards spotted one of the crew. Having no other option, Sharp landed his plane that sat atop two pontoons. The good news was that Cap pilot Lieutenant Henry Cross was rescued. However, the bad news was that his partner Charles Shelfus could not be found. Also, the left pontoon below the plane was so battered by the landing in the ten-foot waves that it could no longer support the plane, so takeoff was impossible. Now, the three men sat in the wounded Siskorsky S-39 and wondered aloud what to do. The only answer was implemented by the pilot Sharp. If he could not take off, he would taxi the plane all the way home some 20 miles. It was better than swimming or drowning. But as the plane moved forward, the pierced left pontoon scooped up water. Soon the plane was listing hard left and about to tip over. 
Radio Man Edwards countered this lack of support from the left pontoon by climbing out onto the right pontoon to hold on to the bomb rack. His weight was not a perfect match for the water on the other side, but it was enough to help stabilize the plane. Sharp got the plane moving again, and their journey took two and a half hours. All the while, Edwards was getting dumped in the freezing water to go along with the cold winds. Just before getting to the Virginia coast, the three men were picked up by the Coast Guard. Edwards had mild hypothermia, from which he would cover, and a story to tell for the rest of his life. Not that it stopped there. President Roosevelt, who always loved a good story and was quite the storyteller himself, heard of this rescue and awarded the two men the Air Medal, the first civilian recipients. Now, fast forward to 1944. Admiral King, when reporting to the Secretary of Navy, must have forgotten his less-than-enthusiastic acceptance of the civilian pilots, for he wrote, The help of the Civil Air Patrol was gratefully accepted. Yes and no, but as the saying goes, nothing succeeds like success. But going back to the spring of 1943, King would kill this Civil Air Patrol. However, the Germans had, nine months previous to this, pulled back most of their subs from the Western Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean Sea. And to tie in the Merchant Marine and the U.S. Navy Armed Guard with the defense of the North Carolina coast comes the story of the sinking of U-576. On the U-boat's first four patrols, she was able to sink three ships. Its first two patrols gathered U-Boat 576 and her crew no victims. On her third patrol, leaving St. Nazaire on January 20th, 1942, she was able to locate and sink the Empire Spring, a catapult-armed merchantman, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, off Nova Scotia. The Empire Spring's entire crew was lost. On her fourth patrol, U-576 was a part of Operation Drumbeat, what the German U-boat crews called the American Shooting Season, or the second happy time. The first happy time was in 1940 to 1941 in the North Atlantic and North Sea. During Drumbeat, U-576 sank the Pipestone County on April 21, 1942. 475 nautical miles east of Cape Henry, Virginia. Fortunately, all of the crew from the Pipestone survived. Moreover, the sub surfaced, apologized for the necessities of war, and gave the survivors in their lifeboats supplies. And as this was a war, at the end of that same month, April, U-576 sank the Norwegian vessel Toberfell, further north along the American coast. There, 17 of the 20 crew perished. The sub's fifth patrol set out on June 16, 1942, still a part of Operation Drumbeat. In early July, the sub discovered an Allied convoy, but was unable to get into a good firing position. And then, for whatever reason, the U-boat developed engine trouble. Days later, an air attack damaged one of the sub's ballast tanks. 
now unable to fully control its dives. Back on June 29th, its captain, Heineke, radioed home that he was returning to base, and he would probably have to make the journey on the surface. Then, fate stepped in to claim its marker. On July 5th, off the North Carolina coast, U-576 made contact with convoy KS-520, which had 19 merchant ships and five escorts. They had left Hampton Roads, Virginia, and were heading south to Key West, Florida. Unable to submerge and hide, U-576 let loose four torpedoes. One sank the Nicaraguan cargo ship Bluefields. Another hit and damaged the American cargo ship Killor. This ship would sink when being towed home as it hit an Allied mine. The last two torpedoes hit and damaged the Panamanian tanker J.A. Mowinkle. Then the sub's damage put her in an untenable position. The captain ordered that she submerge. It was that or get blasted out of the water. And she was about to go under, but then the crew began to lose more control of the ship. So the captain ordered her to resurface. And that's when U-576 surfaced right in the middle of the convoy. Straight away, the freighter SS Unicoi started firing at the nearby sub. This was the U.S. Navy armed guard at work, some of whom had joined just because the recruiter said that for breakfast, you get to sit at a table, get eggs served to you any way you want, and a livery serves you. Again, such were the times in America that many young men said yes. It was the guns of the Unicoi, along with the depth charges from two U.S. Navy Vought OS-2U Kingfisher planes, that sank the damaged U-boat. One of the last depth charges dropped actually landed on the sub's surface, rolled off, then exploded. The entire crew of U-576 died right then. Their sub was replaced by a massive oil slick. The remains of U-576 was found in 2014, 30 miles off Cape Hatteras. Not that it always went the merchant marine's way. After the war, it was tallied that of the 6,236 Allied merchant ships armed by the Navy, 710 of them were lost in combat, and 1,810 officers and enlisted men had died or went missing. As Edwards, the man who rode on the right pontoon of his plane for two and a half hours to save someone, said, Anyone could have done it. This may be so, but he was probably thinking of the whole thing from his perspective. And there's no doubt Edwards and all those of the Civil Aviation Patrol and Hooligan Navy were heroes. <laughs>